Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. So in 2016, I have to admit I was rather surprised when I found out that or Donald Trump became the president of the United States. Now at the time I was living in the heart of Appalachian, uh, the Appalachian Mountains. I knew that small town America supported him. I mean, I wasn't naive to that fact where I was living, everybody seemed to love him. It, it wasn't that, it wasn't about who you voted for with that. Just for me personally, I just didn't think Donald Trump was gonna be president one day. Like it just wasn't one of those things I thought was gonna happen. But evidently, the Simpsons did. Now one thing I remember people talking about and what they were just amazed at is how the Simpsons predicted, you know the cartoon show, y'all following me, Simpsons? Yeah, okay, I'm not saying I watched, I'm just saying, this is, this is what I know, okay? Now I was amazed that in 2000, the year 2000, 16 years before he became president, the Simpsons predicted that Donald Trump would be president one day. And there are all sorts of articles, I can't make this up. There are all sorts of articles about, I mean, actual news outlets that wrote about how the Simpsons can predict the future. In fact, Time Magazine uh, published a short article expressing how eerie their ability to predict the future really was. They predicted things, and they go on to list some of their predictions that have come to be true. They predicted the tiger attack on Siegfried and Roy. They predicted that this really smart professor from MIT would win the Nobel Prize. And, and this got me thinking because this made actual headlines, actual news, and reputable magazines and news outlets. They were just amazed at the ability of the Simpsons to predict the future. And I started thinking about it. I said, I mean, they're actually impressed that this satire cartoon could predict that guys who sit on couches with tigers might actually get bit by one one day. <laughs> They're actually surprised that this guy who they predicted when the Nobel Prize, I can't pronounce his name, that's why I'm not saying it, but they're surprised that this guy who had a PhD from Stanford, who worked at Yale and MIT, would one day win a Nobel Prize. I mean, if that kind of guy doesn't win it, who wins it? And then for Donald Trump, well, in 1999, if you didn't know, most of you probably know, but in 1999, he actually announced this exploratory committee to help him decide if he should run for president and sought the nomination of the reformed party. So in 1999, a year before the actual cartoon came out, he started talking about running for president. So my only point is this. If that kind of stuff impresses people, maybe perhaps impresses you or perhaps impresses someone you know, what we're gonna talk about today as far as predictions go should absolutely blow your 
mind. Because today we're going to look at one of the messianic psalms. One of these psalms that were written a thousand years before Jesus, who accurately predicts and accurately walks through the pain and suffering that Jesus faced on the cross. And this was well before the death by crucifixion even existed. In other words, we're going to look at some prophecy this morning. And we can see how a thousand years, I mean, check this out, a thousand years before Jesus actually did this, we see it talked about, we've seen it shown in the scriptures. If you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Psalm 22. That's what we're going to go through this morning. If you don't, it'll be back here on the screen. But let's talk about, before we get into it, we haven't talked about prophecy a lot yet. So before we, we, we dive into this, let's talk about how to understand and use these kinds of scriptures. First, when we're talking about prophecy, especially Old Testament type stuff, we have to understand that the writers who wrote it probably had no idea the depth in which they were writing. For instance, this isn't the case for the revelation, uh, what John wrote in Revelation. He very well knows he's writing about the future. But for many of the other ones, they don't actually know the depth in which God is going to use their writing. Because we believe, of course, that God inspires all scripture, but we also believe he uses humans with their emotions and their abilities and their personality to communicate what later gets compiled into the canon of scripture. And so what we have to realize is when we read Psalm 22, that the author had an intent for writing it. And in that creative process, oftentimes things end up taking a life of their own. I can't tell you how many times I go to write a sermon. I don't really know what I'm talking about yet till I start typing it out. The next thing you know, it just kind of takes a life of its own. And I imagine something like that happens to David as he's penning these Psalms. He's maybe writing about a personal experience or, or just being inspired to write something about suffering. And it kind of takes this shape and this life of its own. We, of course, know that God was leading him through that. And remember, these psalms are poems or they're, they're songs. They're expressing something deeper than just basic human logic, right? It's from the soul. It's something very different, explaining the depths of his feelings and whatever's going on with him. And so when we look at this psalm, we quite clearly see that David is expressing this raw emotion to God. Now, this could be because he's specifically going through something. Or it could be because he's just this creative guy writing these songs and it kind of just takes this shape in this life of its own. For instance, think Edgar Allan Poe. I highly doubt everything he wrote actually happened to him. At least I hope not. Right? Sometimes that creative process, you may get inspired, but it just kind of takes a life of its own. And we know that happens with people who write things like that. And so when we read Psalm 22, we have to understand it is a personal lament, which means, and it's, it's excuse me, it is an, an expression of sorrow and grief. It teaches us how to work through our sorrow and grief. We looked at one last week, and that was a, um, um, a psalm of lament, but it was focused on personal repentance. 
where David was just engulfed in sin and had to get rid of it and work through it. This one is something completely different. This one is David crying out because he feels abandoned by God. And now whether or not David actually feels that way, what we learn is that it's not abnormal to feel that way. It's not abnormal to feel that God has abandoned you, God has left you. That doesn't mean he actually has. But have you guys ever noticed that sometimes you feel a certain way, even though it may not be true, you still are engulfed with those feelings in that situation? And that's what David's dealing with, how to work through all of that. So first understand the Psalm 22 we're about to look at, the original purpose was a a Psalm of lament. It's expressing pain and grief because they feel like God has left them and is not around. But being that, now this is where we're gonna get into the prophecy side of it now. So being that David is a man after God's own heart, it's not surprising then to find that he is prophetic in his writing. That somehow he writes down with extreme accuracy something that wouldn't happen for a thousand years later. Almost this detailed experience of Christ on the cross. Almost as if he could sit there and watch it unfold right before his eyes. But you see, the New Testament writers, they knew that David was prophetic in his writings. Look at what Peter says after he quotes Psalm 16 when he preaches his famous sermon in Acts 2. He says, dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself for he died and was buried and his tomb is still here among us. But, and this for our purposes, this is the only place we're going, but he was a prophet. So they knew, or at least Jesus' disciples knew that David's writings were prophetic. It was speaking perhaps to that situation going on right in front of him, but it was also talking about something else, something that would come or something that somebody else would fulfill. But you see, perhaps Peter, perhaps he learned this from Jesus himself. You see, after the resurrection of Jesus, There were these um, two people who were walking away from it all. We talked about that on Easter, the Emmaus Road. They were leaving Jerusalem. They were heading out. They thought everything was over. They thought the hope was gone. Nothing's really going on. But Jesus came in their midst, remember, and they didn't know who he was. And so Jesus questioned them. Jesus started saying, hey, what are y'all talking about? And they're like, "You, you don't know? You don't know what's happened around here? And of course, he's the only one that actually does know. And so they start pouring it out on Jesus. But look, Jesus took this as a teaching opportunity. Look what he says. He says, Luke 24. He says, wasn't it clearly predicted? I mean, he says it's clear. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so we learn that the scripture, this is specifically talking about the Old Testament, was used to guide, direct, lay out the law for the people of God, but it was also pointing to the future of something that would come, somebody that would come and do certain things. And so for us as Christians, we can do what's called reading the Bible backwards, We can look at who Christ is, what he came to do, and then when we go back to the Old Testament, we can see pictures of Christ, 
We can see things he fulfilled. We can see what scholars call these signposts, these directional points saying, hey, something's coming, something's coming, this is gonna happen. And you say, well, Brian, isn't that misusing the Old Testament? This is what Jesus does, right? He goes back through it and says, look, it's pointing to me. It's been pointing to me. So we get this new approach to learning and understanding how to use the Bible. And I believe that this specific Psalm was one of the scriptures Jesus explained while traveling on the road. So get this, I believe this was used at the first Christian Bible study, right? Jesus explaining to them the suffering of the Messiah. Because this psalm that we're going to look at is in fact the psalm that Jesus quotes while hanging on the cross, dying in agony. We are told that he recites the first line. Perhaps he finished the rest. We won't know for sure, but it gets you to start thinking about this kind of stuff. But it's as if Jesus is using this psalm. Check this out. It, it's, it gets kind of complicated. But it's as if Jesus is hanging on the cross in agony using this psalm as a personal lament, expressing his grief, expressing his sorrow, but at the same time, pointing the people around him to this psalm, telling them, I'm doing this. Be comforted that this was predicted a thousand years ago. Be comforted, I'm fulfilling this. It was written that long ago, I'm using it to express, but yet you can clearly see this is what I am dealing with. In Jesus's agony, he was meditating on this scripture. It was comforting him. And so when we approach this Psalm first, we have to understand it has this double, triple layer thing going on that we can use it and Jesus used it as a personal lament, meaning it can teach you and help you to cry out to God, to work through those feelings of abandonment, perhaps those feelings of pain. When you get so caught up with what's going on, you feel like you're just by yourself and God's not around. This psalm helps you work through that because we'll see this pattern throughout the psalm. We'll see the agony, we'll see the pain, and then we'll see like the next couple lines are like boundary blockers. They don't let him go any further. He reminds himself that what he's dealing with isn't the end, that perhaps there's more. We'll seal it at, see it as we go along. But as we approach this, I wanna remind you or just let you know if you didn't know, feeling abandoned by God Feeling that what's happening to you is unfair and unjust, those are actually normal feelings for a believer. And this psalm helps us work through, deal with it, and express it, but then come out on the other side of it, worshipful. Like that's what this leads you through. So let's read through it and we'll look at together how we can both process this and both how we see Jesus in it. You guys got our task for the day? Yeah, the double task? Okay, it's where we're going. Psalm 22, verse one. You've heard this before, right? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of your older translations say, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call on you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. 
This, of course, is how the psalmist is feeling in the moment. These are the words that Jesus cried out. And scholars debate, mainly theologians get into, was Jesus actually abandoned on the cross? What happened in those moments? How did it all work out? I'm not smart enough to jump into those conversations, but what I can tell you is Jesus felt abandoned. He felt like God wasn't with him. Wouldn't you? Hanging on a cross. And so Jesus cries this out. And so perhaps you felt that way. You felt that God hasn't been with you. Well, just know Jesus understands. And when you pray and you talk with him, know he understands how you feel. And then the psalmist is reminded. It's almost like he catches himself before he goes too far in his pain. Before he lets that pain distract him and get him off course, he's caught. And that's the beauty about God's word, what it does for us. Look at for verse three through five. So he says, God, here's how I'm feeling. Then he says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and they were never disgraced. So he stops, he says, wait, wait, I know like you've abandoned me, like you're not around, I'm by myself. He says, yeah, but you are holy, which means we serve a God who is righteous in all he does. That we don't have a God who's in the business of just banding and people, leaving them out there, not, not being with them or, or anything like that. He said, but you are holy, you are righteous. I mean, you, you can't be doing that. He says, in fact, I've heard the stories of how you've rescued our ancestors, how you've been there. And even when they were dealing with these tough situations, they kept trusting in you and you came through and delivered them. He says, I remember that. Like, I remember these stories that you, you've saved them, Lord. You've rescued them. Like I have the testimony and the witness of others that you do come through. But yet the pain is real. Then he says this in verse six, but I am a worm, not a man. He said, I feel less than human. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, then let the Lord rescue him. So the psalmist says, I feel less than a man. Everyone around me is against me. People are talking about him, shaking their heads at him, making fun of his faith. And that is a hard place to be, folks. If you've ever been picked on, ridiculed, mocked, if you've had to go through any of that stuff, this is what the Psalms crying out saying, hey, this is unbearable. This is too hard to handle. And just remember, that's the exact place Jesus was on the cross. Jesus suffered a very lonely death. And there are times we have to remember that even when we live for God, it will feel lonely, it will feel uncomfortable, it will, be feel, it will feel like when you were trying to serve that Lord, that other people are against you, other people who you thought would be with you aren't with you. Remember, Jesus felt like that on the cross when his disciples scattered. They weren't there, he was abandoned. The very people Jesus came to save turned their back on him. And as you live for God, the very people, perhaps your friends or family, they may turn their back on you as well. And that is a terrible place to be. 
It's a hard place to be. But it reminds himself. He continues, verse 9. He says, yet, this is what I'm feeling, but yet you brought me safely from my mother's womb and led me to trust you at my mother's breast. I was thrust into your arms at my birth. You have been my God from the moment I was born. Do not stay so far from me, for trouble is near, and no one else can help me. So he's in that moment where he feels like all his friends, all his family, whoever, no one's with him, no one's there. And he takes a survey of his life and he's like, wait, wait. God, you've been there for me this whole time. He starts to think about God's providence in his life. And especially back then, I mean, now birth is a miracle, but especially back then having babies and everyone not dying in the process. He just says that whole process of growing in my mother's womb, being born, he says, what a miraculous thing. In fact, then you provided my mother who could nurture me and you've been taking care of this. You've, you've taken care of this whole growth process in my mother's womb. You've taken care of the birth process. You've taken care of me nurtured when I was a helpless infant who could give you nothing. You were looking out for me. You've always been there, God. You always have and you always will. So he pleased to God. And I bet in your life, I bet if you were to survey the times that God has come through, the miraculous things you've, you've, you've asked for and that's happened, the times that you thought you'd never get over, or you'd never come through, or this would never make it, and you've seen God come through over and over, sometimes we need to pause and just remember those things, don't we? Like, wait, wait, wait. This whole world is a spinning ball in the middle of space with this massive sun that's trying to destroy it. Have y'all, you hear me talk about that stuff. It's really weird when you start looking into it, this whole earth thing. And yet here we are in God's providence. We're still here, still living for his purposes. And then he says in verse 12, he goes back to his pain. He says, my enemy, enemies surround me like a herd of bulls. Fierce bulls of Bashan have hemmed me in. Like lions, they open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. Verse 14, here we go. He says, my life is poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Yet you laid me in the dust and left me for dead. So whatever the situation the author is actually facing, whether he's using hyperbole or speaking literally, we can see a clear description of what it would have felt like hanging on a cross. He says his bones are out of joint. This, of course, would be happening when you're hanging from your arms like that, suffocating to death. And then he says, my heart is like wax melting. Now, according to scholars, like I said, the most common way for people to die on a cross was from suffocation. Jesus would have been nailed at his hands or wrists and nailed at his feet, but his feet would have been put at a 90 degree angle. When they laid him down, they would have stretched his hands. They would have brought his feet up. So as he hung, he would have to pull up on the nail in order to breathe, because he's like this, he'd have to pull up on the nail in order to breathe, in order to get relief. It was a slow, excruciating death. 
We're going to read this. Follow along with me. It's pretty long, but it explains what happens on the, the death on a cross. It says the difficulty surrounding the exhalation leads to a slow form of suffocation. Carbon dioxide builds up in the blood, resulting in high levels of carbonic acid in the blood or carbonic acid in the blood. The body responds instinctively, triggering the desire to breathe. And at the same time, the hearts beat faster to circulate available oxygen. The decreased oxygen difficulty in, uh, due to difficulty in exhaling causes damage to the tissue. How do you say that? Cat- say it again? Capillaries, see, I'm learning, causes damage to the tissue in the capillaries, beginning to leak waterly fluid from the blood into the tissues. The result in a backup of fluid around the heart and lungs. The collapsing lungs, failing heart, dehydration, and the inability to get sufficient oxygen to the tissues essentially suffocates the victim. The decreased oxygen also damages the heart itself which leads to cardiac arrest. In severe cases of cardiac stress, the heart can even burst, a process known as cardiac rupture. Jesus most likely died of a heart attack. You see, after a period of suffering on the cross and going through all of that, they would break the legs of the people on the cross so they would go ahead and just suffocate and die faster. But when they went to Jesus, as the gospel writers tell us, he was already dead. They didn't need to break his bones. So rather than breaking his knees, remember they pierced his side and water and blood um, both came out. And according to the medical people, this is a sign that his heart truly did rupture. In other words, as the psalmist said, my heart is melting like wax. The whole event, of course, explains where we see his strength has dried up. His tongue sticks to his mouth, being left for dead. Verse 16, it says, My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs, and an evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. My enemies stare at me and gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. We are told in all the accounts how everybody stood around and they were sneering and mocking Jesus on the cross. This one right here that it says they they pierced my hands and feet. Crucifixion had not yet been invented, but just to be full transparency, this is highly debated, this word pierced. It can also mean bound. It can also mean cut off. They're not exactly sure. You're more than uh, welcome to read the 100 scholarly articles about all of that. But it can go either way, but regardless, in this whole psalm that the hands and feet are brought up, that something's happened to them, to me, works good enough to point me to the cross. And then it says, I can count all my bones. This is probably a picture of the beating that Jesus took before the cross where he can literally see because his flesh was ripped open and tore open. And then as your flesh is tore open, as you're hanging and your body is ripping, what do you think is gonna happen? You start seeing those bones. And then of course, his clothes were divided. I'm at the cross, they divided, his, the soldiers divided among, amongst themselves by throwing dice. So not only do we see David describing something going on in his life, 
we see that Jesus was fulfilling this thing. And he uses this psalm. I mean, guys, we can't make this stuff up. This is the beginning. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus points us to this psalm for us to see what he's going through. May we never forget the incredible amount of pain and suffering that our Savior suffered for us. May we never forget the cost of our salvation. And perhaps in this psalm, you can find a description of your pain and suffering. But the psalm's not done. He says, oh Lord, oh Lord, do not stay far away. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. Save me from the sword. Spare my precious life from these dogs. Snatch me from the lion's jaw and from the horns of these wild oxen. So that was a plea, a cry for help. There's an incredible amount of pain. And he says, God, I need you to rescue me. And then something amazing happens in the last part. We're just going to read it so you can see it together. We're not going to explain the verses away. I'm going to explain the verses. But we see this in, this in this psalm in the middle, all of a sudden, the entire disposition changes. The mood of the author changes. It's perhaps as if everything's been healed, or perhaps as this is a foreshadowing of the resurrection, of what happens after.